This week's Pro Se is brought to you by Docket. Does your legal team struggle with tracking the status of many different work streams? Docket can help make sure nothing slips through the cracks while giving you deeper visibility into what your team is working on. Docket has helped many companies track and manage their legal work from requesting through completion. Visit getdocket.co today to learn more. Pro Se, Law 360's weekly podcast. I'm your host, Amber McKinney, and I'm here with my great co-hosts, Bill Donahue. Hello, hello. And Alex Lawson. Hi, everyone. Uh, I have a news item I'd like to present to the group, if that's okay. Okay, great. That's what we're here for. Uh, We've talked in the past about Kim Kardashian, uh, Kim Kardashian West, and her forays into the legal profession. Sure. She was, she's taken an interest in sort of criminal justice reform clemency reform things like that sure now this this news just came out like a couple hours ago she's getting into the podcast game you guys and not only that the legal news podcasting game she's going to co-host a uh criminal justice podcast for the spotify uh i feel threatened Uh, i know i feel excited like there's lots of opportunities for us to go on her show kim to come on our show Welcome to the family, Kim Kardashian. I would yeah. say this, being that this isn't the first time I've had a beef with the Kardashian West uh, Jenner clan. Um, you know, I would say, come to me if 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 we have to make any moves, you know, and I can maybe advise. Yeah, that's, Bill, that's, does that's... this mean that you're going to ruin my chances of talking to Kim Kardashian West about legal stuff, which is a weird mashup of my interests? If I can. This is, yeah, th- this is very instructive to how the two different wings of Pro Se view other entries into the Legal News podcast. Like, Amber is obviously very excited, sees room for collaboration, things like that. I, and I think Bill, believe that all the other Legal News podcasts need to be crushed, uh, <laughs> terminated with, with, with extreme prejudice. Guys. You gotta have sharp elbows in this, uh, <laughs> in this podcasting game, this no. Legal News podcasting game. The more the merrier. I'm all for it. Yeah, so like like I said, it's on Spotify. So they got Rogan, they got Simmons, and now they have Kim Kardashian. It's really like the infinity stones Austin. of like cultural <laughs> celebrities over there. So we'll see how that goes. I can't wait to listen to it. That sounds fun. Uh, but we have a pretty good show ourselves today. Yeah. Who's yeah, remember Pro Se, the OG? <laughs> we do have a good show today, and in part because the Supreme Court is in their last few weeks of the term, they always get to the really exciting opinions, and we're going to talk about that today. Our guest this week is Hai Feldblum, who is a former EEOC commissioner and now a lawyer in private practice who worked a lot on um, LGBTQ discrimination um, issues, and so she comes on to talk about the big um, gay and transgender rights ruling that came out this week. It was a very good chat that Amber and I had with Hi. Um, but before then, we're going to talk about another Supreme Court ruling, uh, uh, another one in the in the last four days by a what what we have been led to believe is a very conservative Supreme Court that is being uh, uh, applauded by the by the country's liberals. Um, it is uh, today on Thursday the court ruled that that the Trump administration could not at least for the time being, um, terminate a program that has allowed hundreds of thousands of young uh, immigrants to remain in the country. It's the DACA, the Dreamer program. Um, uh, So a very big ruling, and we're going to break it down. 
I this is my ideal show. You guys know I get so excited about Supreme Court stuff, and we're now talking about immigration, one of my favorite areas to discuss. Um, but this has been percolating for so long, and things have gone back and forth about whether or not this DACA program would continue. Can we just sort of back up and maybe remind people what it is and where we stand before we get to the actual ruling? Yeah. So in in 2012, uh, the Obama administration created a program called the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals, or DACA program. Um, It allowed for young people who were brought to the U.S. uh, as children to secure work visas and gain protection from uh, deportation on a temporary basis. I think it was every two years you would have to renew um, your status under this program. But uh, eventually, some 700,000 people sought out these protections. It's a very widely used program. Um, But in 2017, the Trump administration moved to cancel the program to undo it, uh, keeping sort of within the overall approach of the administration to, to... immigration policy, uh, Trump sort of characterized the program both in his campaign and and as he was moving to to, you know, wind it down as this, you know, illegal form of amnesty and and uh, a program that, you know, the uh, the executive branch, the the administration was, you know, not empowered to do themselves that it would have required legislation. Um, if successful, the the move to to unwind this program would have seen many of those thousands of people who use the program, uh, as I mentioned earlier, they are known as dreamers, uh, deported from the country. So unsurprisingly, people pretty quickly sued uh, in courts around the country to challenge the the undoing of this program. And lower judges uh, put the, the administration's rollback of DACA on ice while this case was litigated. Like so many of these battles with the Trump administration, it eventually made its way to the high court, and and this week we got a ruling. Yeah, we we've talked about immigration so much hitting the high court, and I always sort of am on tender hooks because they're such close opinions, and it looks like this one was also that it was a five four ruling, right? It was a five four ruling. Uh, uh, Chief Justice John Roberts, uh, who is a conservative, but he jumped across to join the four uh, more liberal justices, and uh, they ruled that the decision to roll back the DACA program had been uh, what's known as arbitrary and capricious, which are two very legalese jargony words, but for you know that that mean that the administration. Uh, you know, did not adequately explain why they were making this big, drastic reversal of of policy. That's a bedrock um, sort of principle of administrative law. The idea exactly. that if you're, you 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 can change rule, we'll, we'll talk about sort of the extent to which they're allowed to change rules. But you have to sort of give notice. You have to make it as you know not sort of intrusive as possible. Things like that. But yeah, exactly. And many people will remember a very similar ruling uh, last summer on the 2020 census. Uh, yeah, very similar. Uh, ruling where uh, the court avoided really diving into the substance and merely said, if you want to do something like this as an executive agency, there is there is a procedure for it. And the way that you did it did not suffice under that under that uh, framework. Yeah, um, it was basically the exact same idea that um, you can definitely do this thing, but you just didn't give a justification that's plausible or um, enough for why you want to do it. 
Exactly. And it's been interesting to watch some of the news coverage this morning as people sort of adjusted the coverage because, you know, initially you saw a lot of headlines that were Supreme Court says Trump cannot block, cannot uh, do this program. And you saw slowly over the next few hours, cannot do it right now. Because what the court said was that they, not that they can't ever do it, they avoided that question. They said the way that you did it did not uh, suffice and and you know if you want to take another stab at it you have to do it in a different way the quote from the ruling we do not decide whether DACA or its rescission are sound policies uh, wrote the chief justice rescission referring to is the sort of technical term for rolling this back quote we address only whether the agency complied with the procedural requirement that it provided a reasoned explanation for its action uh, and and ultimately they found that it did not the court I should note uh, also rejected a, an even stronger claim against this rollback of DACA, the claim that that this had been um, that it had violated the the Fifth Amendment's equal protection clause in the Constitution, that this had been motivated by by racial animus toward uh, Latinos because it had targeted Latinos specifically. The court rejected that. Said that um, as we've seen in a few cases, they said that Trump's statements touching on it were not. The kind of evidence of this, you know, motivation that you can use in a situation like this to sort of prove that. Um, so, uh, it, uh, Justice uh, Sonia Sotomayor wrote a yeah. concurrence that sort of said she would have let those claims go forward, but the majority opinion uh, didn't reach those uh, or, or rejected those questions. Yeah, she also gave a nod to when she was sort of breaking that down. She gave a nod to Trump v. Hawaii, where sort of racial animus statements by the presidents were yeah. also front and center. That. Case shares a little bit of DNA with this one. Um, that was a really interesting read. But like you said, it was it was five four. I would imagine we got uh, some pretty interesting dissents uh, given the given the breakdown of the vote. Yeah, the four uh, other conservative justices dissented from the ruling, saying pretty much what you would expect in a situation like this. That you know the court was substituting its own policy judgments for you know, what the other branches of government were supposed to be doing. The quote Mm -hmm. from uh, Justice Clarence Thomas, who wrote the dissent, Today's decision must be recognized for what it is, an effort to avoid a politically controversial but legally correct decision. The court could have made clear that the solution respondents seek must come from the legislative branch. In doing so, it has given the green light for future political battles to be fought in this court rather than where they rightfully belong, the political branches. Well, and and there was some interesting stuff about how, you know, under the logic of the majority opinion, if, you know, one administration wanted to really hamstring the the the, the their successor, they could make a big uh, rule. And then even if their successor wanted to undo it, the, the court, the, the dissent believed that the majority's, you know, sort of logic on this would make it very hard to undo the the policy choices of your predecessors. So where does that leave us? Um, you know, we, we, we've talked about the, the sort of, I, I don't know if we would call it narrow, but it's certainly a deliberately drawn opinion in terms of what it actually rules on um, and people sort of quickly correcting headlines and leads uh, in newsrooms around the country. But what, you know, where does this leave us with the, with the, with the future of this program specifically? Yeah, well, I think this, one's, this one's interesting, Bill, and I want you to answer that, but like, you brought up the the citizenship question on the census case. And in that instance, it was, hey, you have to give us a better reason. 
but the clock there was the yeah. real issue that they couldn't actually get that through lower courts and get that onto the right. census in time. So it sort They're of constitutionally out bound to do a census every 10 years. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, we have an election coming up, so it feels like we're in a pretty similar territory here. Yeah, it's um, I mean, it, it, it definitely punts action to two different realms. Right. I mean, it says that you that, that either the obviously the Trump administration can take another crack at this another stab at this um you know it will take months if not years to play out so perhaps that's a thing that will happen you know if they are reelected. um it also i mean i think there's there's decent arguments to be made that this is not the kind of step they want to take in an election year um the other thing that that uh justice thomas obviously pointed out was that it could put the ball in congress's court to to deal with this um to come up with sort of longer lasting legislative reform for these dreamers but i think everyone will remember that uh, on on multiple occasions uh under first the bush administration and then the uh obama administration there were efforts to deal with these questions in some sort of comprehensive way and despite some you know agreement on both sides of the aisle no actual solutions were were reached so yeah we even got grand to a, bargain that you hear about so often we even yes. got to a point under the trump administration where democrats were offering up various solutions that only handled this this issue about DACA, nothing else mm-hmm. with immigration, just DACA. Right. And Trump had indicated some interest in coming up with some solution there, but those talks also ended up fizzling out and he backtracked on some of those promises. So it just exactly. feels really intractable at this point. So the, I mean, the takeaway now barring those two sort of longer term steps is that the, you know, the, the 700,000 or so dreamers uh, that are affected by this program for right now are, uh, more secure than they were leading into this. Uh, we will see what happens in terms of those bigger steps, but for right now, they can um, they can breathe a bit easier. Well, I don't know if you guys can hear that. I don't know if it's coming through on the on the Zoom speakers, but it's another Trump lawsuit we're going to talk about. So uh, there's a there's a theme, uh, and this one you've almost certainly heard about if you're listening uh, if you've been even casually paying attention to the news. This week, uh, it deals with John Bolton book, uh, which most people are probably caught up on. I just it's interesting there because there have been a lot of books about the Trump White House, and almost all of them get some level of blowback from the White House or from or from Trump himself about their contents. He'll say it's it's you know it's it's a lie, it's it's uh, it's it's full of falsehoods or anything like that. Um, but this week, we saw all of that sort of acrimony spill into an actual courtroom because the administration has now sued to stop the publication of a memoir from former advisor John Bolton. Um, It has alleged that the book is rife with classified information that will endanger national security, and they're trying to sort of put a a stop on it. Yeah, I think uh, what the the coverage has been that most people have heard is about the actual contents of the book and what it means for um, sort of the political side of this, the upcoming election, how it reflects on Trump. Fewer people have really dug into the suit itself. So if you can kind of break down like what the arguments are in court, that'd be great. Yeah, I mean, to call it a political football is an understatement at this point. We're, we're, we're going in a million different directions. We'll just try and keep it to within the sort of four corners uh, of the actual lawsuit. Um, really, at its most basic level, it's a breach of contract suit. Um, it just happens to involve the White House and the former National Security Advisor. The basic facts are... 
Bolton went to work at the White House as the national security advisor in April of 2018, um, and he was fired by Trump in September of 2019. Um, he then decides he's going to write a book about his time there, um, you know, sensing that there's a great amount of interest in what goes on behind closed doors uh, in the Trump White House. And according to the suit, um, all of this stuff that I'm going to lay out now is sort of alleged in the suit filed by the government this week, just so that's understood. Um, Bolton and his publisher begin the process of vetting his manuscript with the White House in January, which he's contractually obligated to do. And that vetting is meant to sort of clear it of classified material, which Bolton is barred from disclosing under the terms of numerous nondisclosure agreements that he signed when he began working at the White House. So this vetting process progresses to the point that a National Security Council official who is basically running point on the vetting at some point tells Bolton in April that the book has been cleared of classified info as she understands it, but that the NSC legal team still has to complete its review of the document. And it's here where things go a little bit sideways, because at this point, this process has gone on for so long that they've pushed back the publishing date on a couple of different occasions. And Bolton and the publisher, Simon & Schuster, apparently decide to publish the book anyway, uh, even though the review process is still underway. They start putting, sort of seeding that out to major news publications who say it's going to be published on June 23rd, which it's June 18th as we record this right now, which sort of ups the intrigue a little bit. And the government sued to basically stop that from happening. Here's the sort of money quote from the suit. The United States is not seeking to censor any legitimate aspect of the defendant's manuscript. It merely seeks an order requiring defendant to complete the pre-publication review process and to take all steps necessary to ensure that only a manuscript that has been officially authorized through that process and is thus free of classified information is disseminated publicly. So a day after they filed the complaint saying that, uh, the government asked for an injunction uh, or a restraining order against uh, the actual publishing of the book and have asked for a hearing to be held on Friday. So that sort of brings us up to speed on what is actually the central claim. It's... It's so interesting that this, uh, you know, as we've seen little snippets of this come out, it's raised very interesting questions about what it actually means in 2020 to publish a book. Because you look back at, at, at some of the case law about situations like this, the Pentagon Papers, some of these other sort of, you know, profound cases. They were in an era where you were talking about if the newspaper didn't publish it, it wasn't going to get published but now these copies are out everywhere things can get out on the internet it has it 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 it, it certainly makes you wonder in sort of an existential or like metaphysical way about like yeah. what actually they're seeking to block with this yeah this uh it was it was really something to see because this this news blew up obviously the story about the actual lawsuit um and then also almost at the same exact time lengthy excerpts from the book were being published like by the Wall Street Journal yeah. and the New York Times I think and several other outlets while he's saying, don't publish any of this stuff. It was, it was crazy to see. Um, like you were indicating, Bill, the publisher basically said as much in a response to the government's motion. They issued a statement saying that there's really no point. Um, that, that their, their quote, uh, again, in response to the injunction request was, uh, they basically called it a frivolous, politically motivated exercise in futility. Hundreds of thousands of copies of the book have already been distributed. Have already been distributed around the country and the world. They added later that the injunction, as requested by the government, would accomplish nothing. So yeah, I mean it's in it's in newsrooms. There are advanced copies. It's out in the world, as you say. Um, but they're clearly pretty chapped about it. 
I mean, you know, this is about Trump and he's never been shy about making his opinions known. So what has he said about this entire sort of debacle we're in right now? Well, that's what makes it so interesting. Like, like I said, there are there have been a, numerous books about the Trump administration that he's clearly not happy about. But you just don't see it actually make it into the middle of a courtroom um, that yeah. often. And um, Trump, like you say, Amber, has has definitely made his opinion known on this, though it is not quite along the same line of argument as that from his legal team. He's put out a bunch of tweets since this all bubbled up, basically saying that uh, Bolton's book is pure fiction. He said it's made up of lies and fake stories. And this really mobilized media law Twitter. And Bill, if you want to jump in here, I know this is your area to some degree. I quickly noted that if the book is untruthful, it kind of casts some doubt upon the idea that it contains classified information. If it's just completely made yeah. up, then it can't really be classified state secrets here. Right. I, I love this. I love the idea that, uh, yeah, it can't be both. Which one is it? Is it full yeah. of classified I stuff mean, it, that yeah. you're not supposed to get out? Or is it full of just untruths? And Trump loves to say that things are libel if they wanted to file a libel suit. And maybe they will. Like, I mean, it, it, you, it, it could be both, Amber, right? Like, I mean, it's a 500-page pretty hard, script. Pretty hard for the president of the United States to file a libel lawsuit. Just to, I just wanted to throw that in there. Hey. Yeah, I, well, but, never but, is m- someone more a public figure, so. <laughs> well, I'm just saying, like, but I, I, I wouldn't put it past him to try. Let's just put it that way. Sure. Um, but in any case, it's a 500-page manuscript. I guess you could credibly make the argument that some things in there are false and some things and in there are, are state classified. secrets, right? Okay, like, sure. So, but the interesting thing, you know, well— the point about trying to stop the book from being published to the to the publisher's statement seems somewhat academic. Uh, this is being you know published at length in lots of different corners of the media. Um, if the court ever gets to the merits on this, again, we are recording this on Thursday. If they issue if they issue even some kind of perfunctory order, uh, take this with a grain of salt as we're talking about this. Um, but I don't know if they'll have to wade into this idea of whether a pre-publication vetting process by the government is being done in good faith or if it amounts to any kind of uh, you know, censorship or anything like that. You throw in a national security element, which is because that's, that's, that's the question that is sort of before them. It's a muddy road forward, um, but it wouldn't be a Trump lawsuit if, it, uh, if there wasn't a muddy road forward. So I guess we'll see. Once again, this week's Pro Se is brought to you by Docket. If your legal team is struggling with tracking the status of all different kinds of stuff you're dealing with at work, well, Docket can help you. It can help make sure that nothing slips through the cracks while also giving you a deeper visibility into what your team is working on. Docket has helped many companies track and manage their legal work from request all the way through to completion. Visit getdocket.co today to learn more. The U.S. Supreme Court issued a historic LGBTQ ruling this week, finding that federal law forbids discrimination against gay and transgender workers. Here to talk with us about the ruling is someone who's spent her legal career combating employment bias. Hi, Feldblum, a former commissioner of the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, and now a director of Workplace Culture Consulting at Morgan Lewis. Thanks for being with us. Hi. I'm so pleased to be here talking to both of you. 
Yeah, it's nice for us to have a story um, where we can talk about uh, a long trail of work toward um, getting a precedent from the Supreme Court and and how that turned out. I feel like we haven't had a lot of these lately. So let's just start with the basics. If somebody was following the news this past week and just saw the headline, what do they need to know about this case? What exactly did the court decide? Well, what someone needs to know about what happened this week in the opinion is that the Supreme Court has now told us that existing civil rights law that prohibits discrimination based on sex and employment that employers have been complying with since 1964 also protects lesbians, gay men, bisexuals, transgender people from discrimination in employment. I think that on some level might surprise people out there who maybe already thought, well, aren't, weren't those people already protected? Why are we at this point? And this wasn't already the law of the land. I think there's for the common person that wasn't following the law, they might not even know this was an issue. Correct. This is the difference between people who are LGBTQ and those who are not. But even a lot of people who are LGBTQ, if you look at the polling over the last any number of years, Huge majorities of people already thought that it was illegal to fire someone or not hire someone just because they're gay. I mean, that's sort of a shocking thing that people already thought this was the law. We finally got here. But it helps explain why um, this ruling is already being called a landmark decision in the area of uh, of equal protection. So. Can you tell us more about how we got here? I know you were an EEOC commissioner and worked on this for a good part of your career. So give us a little story about what you were pushing um, for the reading of the law to be. Mm -hmm. And to explain that, let's say something else about the disconnect between what people thought the law was and what the law actually was until the Supreme Court decided this case. People thought that if they were fired because they were gay, they would go to the EEOC because before you can file a claim in court that you have been discriminated against in employment, you have to go to the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission and file a claim. Right. And they would go to the EEOC, they would talk to someone at the EEOC, and the investigator would say, sorry, you're not covered under the law and would not file a charge, would not take in a charge. That's often when people found out that they were not protected under the law. Yeah. That changed when the EEOC, way before the Supreme Court, when the EEOC in 2012, two years after I got there, issued opinions that said that LGBT people could bring charges. And again, we can talk about how EEOC got there, mm-hmm. but starting with first hundreds of charges and then thousands of charges since 2012. LGBT people were coming to the EOC. The EOC was investigating their charges. But there was never a guarantee that if those people had to go to court, that the court would agree with the EOC and hear their case. So I think it it helps to, you know, can you give us the broad outlines of what that legal argument was that, that, you know, because I think it helps to understand what the court said on Monday because it obviously adopted that argument. What was, what were sort of the broad outlines that, that, that you were arguing? Right. So the EOC actually had three arguments that it put out an opinion in 2015 in the Baldwin case. Any one of those theories would have gotten to coverage 
Justice Gorsuch chose one of those three theories. I was personally very gratified because it was my favorite theory, (laughs) one that was most persuasive to me. And therefore, no surprise, it was the first theory set forth (laughs) in the Baldwin decision. And that theory is based simply on the text. And I was a law professor for 18 years at Georgetown Law School. I taught statutory interpretation. Justice Frankfurter's famous three rules of statutory interpretation was read the text, read the text, read the text. I and so many others know that the way to read a law is to start with the words of the law. Mm -hmm. So the law says you cannot discriminate based on sex. It took some time for the Supreme Court to make clear that that meant that sex had to be irrelevant to any employment decision, right? And that is the but-for analysis. Right. But-for sex of that employee or applicant, would that employee have been discriminated against? So I always said, you know, if my colleague, Mark, had a picture of his wife, Nancy, on the desk, and that was fine, And then I came in one day and put a picture of my wife, Nancy, on the desk and I got fired. What is the difference between me and Mark? Right. It's It's inextricably. So that was the first argument that was always my favorite argument that was persuasive to me. And I'm thrilled that Justice Gorsuch, you know, ran with that argument. What what I think a lot of people found so fascinating about Monday's ruling is what you were just saying, that it was so rooted in this textualist, you know, uh, approach to statutory interpretation. But we also saw a very strong dissent that, that that you know, took a, took that same interpretation and said, no, you've done this wrong. Could you sort of Battle walk of us... Battle of the textualists. Right. It was it was a fascinating look at what textualism is. And, and could you sort of walk us through what the argument that the dissent was making here? And, you know, what do you make of that divide? Right. Um, it is very interesting to think of it as the battle of the textualists, but where the dissent really lost was that even if you took their view of the text, uh, they still lost, as mm-hmm. Justice Gorsuch explained. So if you're trying to push like a gender stereotyping theory, you really need to say that sex itself includes gender, includes other elements other than whether you are a man or a woman. So if you're taking that argument, then you are pushing against the idea that sex in Title Seven means a man and a woman, discriminating against someone because he's a man, discriminating against someone because she's a woman. What was fascinating about how the case was argued, the plaintiffs, the ones representing LGBT people said, we will accept that. We will accept that. It is about being a man or a woman, but it is because someone is a woman instead of a man that the discrimination is happening. So a lot of where the dissent was going fits a lot better if you're trying to argue the case on gender and gender stereotyping, but it really is pretty weak when you're up against another textualist who has bought your initial presumption. It refers to men 
and women and nothing else. Yeah, this was a really interesting one. Um, But now we're at the point where we have a definitive ruling, finally, after years of circuit splits and so many cases arising around this issue. Um, What is this going to mean when we're moving forward? Are employers going to have to rush out and change policies? Are we going to see a a swell of of new lawsuits? What are you expecting? So I will answer that question. But before I want to pick up on the idea that there were years of circuit splits, and now we're finally getting a Supreme Court opinion dealing with something that's been percolating for a while. That's not the case. And the Mm -hmm. EEOC was the one that started the courts down the wrong path in the late 1970s. And it was the EEOC that reversed course and therefore changed the legal landscape so you could have the case before the Supreme Court in the first place. Right. Right. The Civil Rights Act passed, gay people, transgender people at the time thought, great, we're covered. And there were some EEOC offices that agreed with them. But in the late 1970s, the EEOC issued a ruling with regard to a transgender person and a ruling with regard to a gay person and said, you are not covered under Title VII. And their reason was simply that Congress never intended this. Right. They did not grapple with the language. So they cut LGBT people out of the statute, carved them out without any analysis of the text, and the courts followed. Mm-hmm. And through the 1980s, through the 1990s, through the early 2000s, mm-hmm. there was no circuit split on this question, that there was this exclusion. There were some people that got in through a gender stereotyping argument, but there was no split. Right. And yeah. Then in 2012, EOC held under a gender stereotyping theory that gay people were covered and the commission started taking in charges. And then in 2015, it put out an argument that laid out this textualist argument. That argument had never been presented to courts for the previous 30 years. So courts didn't have to grapple with it. Baldwin came out in 2015. A few months or so later, the first district court cited Baldwin for the proposition that all gay people were covered. Sexual orientation was a form of sex discrimination. I did a dance around my office (laughs) that day, and I cut out the front page of that district court opinion and stuck it up on my wall. (laughs) Because it was clear that now that analysis was going to have to be grappled with by the courts. Right. Yeah. It was almost- That's what made the Seventh Circuit in Hively take that on bunk. The Second Circuit in Zarda taking that on bunk. That's the reason the courts now started grappling with right. theory. It was a revolution more than a uh, more than than a long simmering split. It was just that this had never been analyzed this way before. Exactly. It had never been analyzed this way before. Right. And once it was oh my God, it's like the emperor has no clothes, right? All all the arguments against it just didn't work because you couldn't use the intent of Congress. Justice Scalia and the Supreme Court had taken care of that in the Ancal case to say it really doesn't matter that they weren't thinking of sexual harassment, including male-on-male sexual harassment. It's the words of the law that matter. So you couldn't use intent anymore. And once you couldn't use intent, how is it not but for? sex. So this, this was not long simmering. 
It was yeah. a revolution in 2015. And in 2020, we are seeing the end of that revolution. And five years for people's lives feels like a long time. But five years to make that big of a change and get a Supreme Court ruling is pretty extraordinary. It is pretty extraordinary that it would have happened in that way. And I credit the gay legal groups, in particular, Greg Nevins at Lambda Legal, who, when he heard this argument, he was all about it. You see what I mean? A lot of other people were just skeptical about the argument because it just hadn't been put forward. Lambda Legal and Greg Nevins at Lambda Legal believed in this theory when I was first talking about it in 2012. And so the fact that the gay legal groups started bringing this theory forward in a way they hadn't before, and the fact that it's just right, it's just correct, that even courts that hardly ever take cases on bunk, like the Second Circuit, felt compelled to take the case on bunk. And to be clear, culture does have something to do with it. Right. I always said cultural logic had to change before legal logic could catch up. So that actually kind of circles us back to um, where I wanted to go a few minutes ago, which is um, if the culture's moved and now the courts have moved along with it, does that mean employers are mostly already handling this in an appropriate way? Or do you think there'll be a lot of policy changes, a lot of new lawsuits? What are you expecting? I do not expect to see necessarily an explosion of charges or lawsuits as I expect to see an explosion of education. I expect to see lots of sessions at conferences on LGBT protection. Yeah. And I will say, I mean, being at a management law firm was definitely a new move for me in my career. It was not something I'd ever done. Uh, I have learned so much and I've actually appreciated being in this setting because I will tell you every company, client, organization I've talked to over the past year, they've had these policies already. So they are not going to have to change significantly. This just reaffirms where they have gotten to because of the culture already. But there are a lot of other employers out there that did not have these policies. The reason there were thousands of people that came to the EEOC from 2012 on was because they were still experiencing discrimination and usually in businesses and organizations that didn't have these policies of anti-discrimination. That will change now. Hi, we'll get you out of here in just one second, but but I wanted to leave us on, you know, th- we're obviously talking about the context of employment law here, but will this have... Uh, an impact on on restrictions on on transgender people in a in a broader sense in other contexts. I mean, does this have a broader sort of impact beyond just uh, this piece of Title Seven? Absolutely, this ruling is going to reverberate across the country, not only in employment, but in education, in healthcare, in housing. In any law that prohibits discrimination based on sex, I find it very unlikely that a court would not consider sexual orientation and gender identity to be a form of sex discrimination and therefore prohibited by that law. And Justice Alito very helpfully in one of his appendices listed all of those laws. (laughs) Without a doubt, both transgender people and LGBT people 
experience discrimination in all of these areas. And here's the difference for me. You know, I also spent 20 years of my life working on particular bills. Um, first, ENDA to prohibit discrimination in employment. And then when I wasn't working anymore, but they have on this the Equality Act that was for the rest of the Civil Rights Act would have added sexual orientation and gender identity. Even if the Equality Act had passed, it pales in comparison to the impact of this ruling. Because the Equality Act would have just amended other titles of the Civil Rights Act. This ruling has implications on hundreds of laws in a range of areas, even beyond the original Civil Rights Act. This ruling is simply huge for LGBT people in every aspect of their lives. Thanks for explaining that. It really has earned its already landmark status as a Supreme Court ruling. It certainly has earned its status as a landmark ruling. Great. Thanks a lot for being with us, Hi. Absolutely. Thanks, Hi. wrap up our show for today we had a jam-packed one thanks for being with me to talk about it bill see you again next week guys and alex i'm trying to get a tro against the kim kardashian podcast not on any legal grounds just because i don't like it and i'm threatened by it but yes Uh, thank you i'm excited to listen to it and i'll probably talk about it in a future episode (laughs) okay we also want to thank our producers kelly marcano and steven trader our graphic designer chris yates our guests this week, Hi Feldblum, and our contributing reporters, Braden Campbell, Jimmy Hoover, Dorothy Adkins, and Suzanne Moniak. Music for the show comes from Silent Partner and Kelly Marcano. If you like Pro Se, leave us a written review on Apple Podcasts. That helps other people find us. And if you want to read more about anything we've talked about today, head to our website, law360.com slash podcast. Thanks, and see you back here next week.